Good morning. It is such a treat to be with you this morning. Look forward when Edwin invited me. I, he wasn't through speaking before I was saying, yes, 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 I'll come. And it's so good to see the Spirit of the Lord so evident and felt in the motion, uh, worship service. But I have to thank your excellent musicians. What a beautiful bit of music you're adding to me as well as to all the congregation. Thank you very much. Uh, I know I'm new to some of you. Um, I'm reminded that uh, my last church in Savannah, I, was, I just parked my car in, in the parking lot and was walking to my office, and one of the little girls in our congregation with, was walking with her mother, and she saw me and she said, Look, Mom, there's our creature. So I'm the creature for the day. I'm about to read uh, God's word. And I'm going to pray for illumination of the spirit. But I invite each one of you to pray before I read the scripture. And you ask, Lord, what do you have for me? What do I need from this service? What do I need from the reading of Scripture? And make it very personal to you. Then I will close that prayer with you. Let us pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together. Be pleasing in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Hear now the word of God in the New Testament. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple, And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching and saying, is is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And when the chief priests and the scribes heard it, They kept looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. This is the word of the Lord. For this lesson this morning, I want to share a memory with you. Some years ago, I attended the missions conference at Montreat, where our missionaries were being commissioned, and after the service, they would leave for the four corners of the world. Some of those missionaries gave their testimonies, and one in particular was a medical doctor. He was an emergency doctor in the state of Washington. And he said that the place where he served was near the timberline, and it was not uncommon for lumberjacks 
to come to the emergency room because they had injured themselves in, the, in their work. And he mentioned this one particular lumberjack. He came in and sat him on the table. And he had come in because he had a shoulder injury. So they removed his shirt and sitting on the examining table, there was a bearded man, thick neck, massive shoulders and back, muscled arms, thick hands, all because of the nature of his work. And unexpectedly for the doctor, he thought about Jesus, who was a carpenter. But he said, I thought of Jesus not as a modern carpenter that has a two-by-four brought to the site. Jesus, on the other hand, had to go into the woods, select a tree, and then take an axe and whack and whack and whack until the, the tree fell. Then he would take a saw and by hand saw the pieces. And then he would lift up those pieces and put them in a cart, ox cart. And then he would take him to the shop and then lift him and put him into the shop. Then he would plane each piece of lumber with his hands to eventually provide a, a, a plow, a yoke, furniture, or some toys for the village. And the good doctor said he would never forget that picture of Jesus in his mind. Nor have I. Because he said Jesus looked like a lumberjack. And I ask you to hold that picture of him on the day of our lesson because it's important. This was now the beginning of the end for Jesus. Jesus arrives at the temple in the Passover feast and what greets his eye is obscene, incredible, cattle, Lambs, goats, doves, their sound fill the area. Cattle dealers and pilgrims arguing over prices, men sitting by their wicked cages filled with doves hawking their sails. On all four sides of the temple are tables of the money changers stacked high with coins. Pilgrim and money changer arguing over the exchange rate. On that steaming head of that head day of the April day, the stench and the filth of a stockyard and the raucous haggling over money, all of this at the entrance of the temple of the Most High God. And the smell and the sound of it aroused the Son of God, and he is livid. He fashions a whip of cords and in short order, decisively, completely, Jesus clears the place. 
He overturns the tables of the money changers, orders the dove sellers to take their cages and get out. And just like that, the outer courtyard of the temple is cleared of desecration. Only the animal droppings remain. Now, the denial and the desertion of the disciples does not anger Jesus. The injustice of his trial does not anger him. The injustice of Pilate going on political correctness does not anger him. His own crucifixion does not anger Jesus, but this does. He tears the place apart and tells them all to get out. Beside the obvious, what in the world makes Jesus so livid? And why do the chief priests decide then and there, and I'm quoting, to seek a way to destroy him? What turns a group of priests, of all people, into plotting the murder of a good religious man? So again, why is Jesus so angry? And why do the priests want him dead? The priests are the representatives of the Sadducean party. The other half of the two parties, the other being the Pharisees, that succeed in having Jesus crucified as a criminal, as a blasphemer. Two groups, Pharisees and Pharisees and Sadducees. And who are the Sadducees? Briefly, let me tell you about them. They came into existence at the same time as the Pharisees, but where the Pharisees are the lay people, the Sadducees are all priests. They believe in the law as well as the Pharisees, but the Sadducees are the more broad-minded, the more liberal of the two groups. Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees do. Sadducees do not believe in the existence of angels or that God is going to send angels to help. The Pharisees do. The Sadducees do not believe in punishment or rewards. The soul perishes with the body, and that's the end of it. That's what they believe, theologically. Politically, the Sadducees are wise as serpents. They compromise with the Roman authorities and collaborate with Rome. They are the practical men of Israel. As far as they are concerned, there's no need to upset the apple cart with Rome. Their motto is to live and let live. And in return, the Romans use the priests to control the people. So it's a good arrangement for both. The Romans have their peace and get their taxes. And the priests are given power. And then socially... The Sadducees make up the religious aristocracy. They are not the common priests from the country. The Sadducees are the equivalent of cardinals and bishops of our day. They are the priests who can influence the Roman government. They see themselves as a real political arm of the nation, the controlling upper class of citizens. They represent the future of Judaism because as long as they are in control, things will be better for them and for the nation. Their motto would be equal 
tool. He used to say, what is good for General Motors is good for the nation. And they'll go to any length to preserve their position of power. And the Sadducees control the temple area. The temple is their turf, their power. They lease the space for the money changers. They allow the cattle and the flocks of sheep into the courtyard temple. Now you will ask, why do the chief priests allow and promote such a travesty, such a desecration? Well, the answer is really not difficult. Here's the inside story. By law, every Israelite had to pay a half-shekel atonement fee at the feast. That was required by the law of Moses in the book of Exodus. Since Jews came from the Passover from the four corners of the earth, carrying coins from those heathen nations with a, uh, the figure of a, of a, a Gentile uh, emperor, that disqualified those coins. So they had to go to the money changers to get the authorized coins of Israel for their offering. So this is what should happen. Here come the money changers. For a small fee of 4%, the money changers would change the money for the authorized coins of Israel and the handling fee on that day was equivalent to one day's pay. When you think of the thousands who came to the temple at the Passover feast, you can just imagine the prophets. But sacrifices were also required. Oxen, sheep, goats, turtle doves. Each animal had to be examined by a priest since all sacrifices by the law of Moses are to be without spot and blemish. Outside the temple area, the sacrificial animal could be bought for approximately $4. But when the people brought those animals to the priest, the priest would reject those animals ostensibly for some blemish. And then the priest would then direct the worshiper to go into the approved dealers inside the temp area who would then change the, charge the helpless pilgrim an exorbitant fee of 17 times this, what the same animal would cost outside the temple. Imagine the prophets. And so you'll ask, well, what became of the prophets from the money changers and the sale of those animals? Who are the real owners of the temple markets? You guessed it. The Sadducean party, the chief priests, the families of Annas and Caiaphas. Annas and Caiaphas are the leaders of the Sadducees. You remember their names when you read the Gospels. Matthew writes, and I'm quoting, Then the chief priests gathered in the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and took counsel together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. In another place, Matthew records, quote, those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, to his house, where sentence was pronounced that he deserves death. John recalls the event as well. He writes, they led him first to Annas, where he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. And John notes in another place, Pilate said to him, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. There's your collaboration. 
But now why are the Sadducees out to get Jesus and have him not arrested, not sentenced to prison, not even to be banished, only to be killed? As long as Jesus remains in Galilee, they would not bother with him far away. But when Jesus invades their temple, their turf, overthrows the tables of the money changers, the gentlemen are aroused. Jesus tore their business up. And for that, for that, they decided to get rid of him. Jesus is intolerable to them. He has invaded their vested interests, their cartel. So Jesus becomes a threat, a radical social thinker, an intruder. Jesus strikes at the core of how they turn a profit, and he threatens their source of revenue, the means and, and where the means and the methods by which they get it. Also, Jesus upsets their good old boy understanding with the Romans. He threatens the political alliances that keep the Sadducees in power. Jesus questions their moral views that allow for the exploitation of people for enormous profits. So when Jesus enters their turf, when he gets in the way of their business, when he judges their political views, their cozy alliance that gives them control over the people, well then, they want to kill him, get him out of the way. They do not want Jesus messing with their money or with their politics. They want him to stay in the region of the, uh, religion of the synagogue, not where they live and work and make their living. I had to ask myself, what would make the Sadducees think and act the way they do? The answer is not difficult to find. They do what they do because of the way they understand God. They do not believe in the resurrection or the future life of judgment or rewards. For them, this life is it. So why worry about the judgment? It won't happen. Therefore, they said to themselves, let us be practical men. We'll be practical. They also do not believe in angels. So God's not going to send any angels to help. And since it's up to us, they said, let's be smart. Let's deal with the people of power and status and wealth. Deal with them. So they become their aristocracy, merging religion and politics and finance. The three greatest sources of human power. They get rid of Jesus to keep their world secure for their morals, their politics, their religion, and their business. And what angers Jesus is also what their kind of thinking does to people. Their kind of thinking dehumanizes people. Here's a perfect example. Where do the chief priests allow the cattle and sheep and money changers to gather? It's not in the area reserved for the priests, not in the area reserved for Israelites, nor is it the area reserved for Jewish women. No. 
the cattle and the sheep and the money changers are to gather in the courtyard of the Gentiles. Us folks. The only place reserved for Gentiles to pray to the God of Israel, that's where they put the cattle. That is where the selling is to be done. After all, they thought, they're only Gentiles. Who cares? Dehumanizing. That's what this kind of thinking does. They exploit people. People are used for profit, for self-interest. And the more helpless and powerless the people, the greater the abuse and the greed. In contrast to the Sadducees, what does the Bible show? Right at the beginning of the Bible. It shows God taking Israel out of the bondage of Egypt because God will not have people oppressed. We see God making laws forbidding any kind of idolatry which brings people into bondage. He makes laws to forbid covetousness because it destroys people and human relationships. And in the New Testament, we see Jesus releasing people from all manner of bondage. He heals the man with a withered hand so the man can be self-sufficient. He heals a leper so that he will not be a social outcast anymore. He takes Matthew the publican as his disciple in order to give a signal that Jesus does not operate on the basis of class distinction. And what makes what makes their actions so intolerable to Jesus is that it is the religious people who are doing this. Religious people who think that God is not interested in such earthly matters. The Sadducees think they can get away with it even at the very entrance of the temple of the house of God. So when Jesus comes saying, you will not treat people that way as inferior, they get offended. My house, he says, shall be a house of prayer for all nations. He says, you will not exploit people anymore for profit. You are not going to do business thinking God does not care how you do it. The Sadducees answer by plotting to kill him. They say, Jesus does not know who he's dealing with. So, what will one do for money, power, profit? What will one do to climb over another person for status, position, power? What will one do in the name of religion and politics be enough to crucify Jesus when he gets in the way of someone's vested interest? Precisely what happens. Well, that's the inside story of why Jesus is killed. And we need to remember that it was not the low-life criminal element that killed Jesus. It wasn't the terrorist, not the insurrectionist. Religious people killed Jesus. Priests who believe the Bible. And that's precisely why we should know them. For we too are religious people who believe the Bible, believe in God and worship at his temple. And so this lesson during our Lenten season shakes us. 
so that we will examine our own faith and our own relationship to Jesus Christ. Long ago, David the king found himself wanting to be upfront with God, upfront with his politics as a king of Israel, upfront with his treatment of the people, with the wealth of his nation. So he prayed. Examine me, O God, and know my mind. Test me and discover my thoughts. Find out if there is any evil in me and then guide me in the way everlasting. David wanted to know. In fact, he wants, in fact, he wants God to test him so that he can find if there is any evil in him. And so the question of the morning is this. Several questions. Do we want Jesus to invite do we want to invite Jesus to our turf to look at our vested interests? Do we want Jesus to cross the courtyard of our life and examine it to see if there's a wicked way in it? Would we risk our Lord's view and ask him to examine it? lead us in the way. Well, that's the story. Do we want Jesus in? Or want, do we want Jesus out of the way? And so the last view we have of this lesson Is a temple courtyard in shambles and quiet. And our Lord standing there with a whip in his hand, looking like a lumberjack. That's what can happen. When Jesus enters our turf, our turf, we can either say, Oh Lord, welcome, welcome to my turf. Or we can say, Don't look, don't look. You can't come in. Well, that's why the people planned to kill him. They didn't want that kind of an examination. Amen.